Welcome to the first episode of the spring series of Goodwill Hunters, which asks, can Australia be a sustainability superpower? I'm your host, Dermot O'Gorman, CEO of WWF Australia, and I'll be joined by my co-host, Rachel Mason Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. WWF is proud to presenting this series in partnership with Goodwill Hunters in the lead up to the UN's Climate Change Conference kicking off in late October. In this first episode, we'll speak to two important voices on the climate crisis we face. Victor Stephenson, an Indigenous leader, a fire practitioner, and author of the groundbreaking book, Fire Country, and Dr. Leslie Hughes, Australian academic, climate scientist, and former lead author of the IPC's fourth and fifth assessment report. After more than 20 years of working on climate change, our conversation with Leslie and Victor was both honest about the challenges we face, but also very practical on what needs to be done now. It is, I feel, also provides a vision of hope that Australia could step up to be a sustainability superpower. Enjoy the episode and join the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and through the hashtag Regenerate Australia. As world leaders prepare to gather in Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent out a dire warning. We've caused permanent damage to the Earth's climate. Without significant changes, the average global temperature is very likely to rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2040. The experts are clear. World leaders must commit to an ambitious reform agenda to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But what do those changes look like? What does all this mean for the most vulnerable communities? And what is Australia's role in climate leadership? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder and executive producer of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Australia's most trusted conservation organisation. Through its Regenerate Australia campaign, WWF is calling on Australian leaders to make Australia the world's leading exporter of renewable energy by 2030. Thank you for joining us for this crucial conversation. We invite you to contribute to the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and WWF Australia and hashtag Regenerate Australia. Leslie and Victor, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm going to jump right into the big question. Why is it so important for us to protect the natural world? What is the true value of nature in, in your view? Well, I think nature means very different things to different people, but fundamentally it's our life support system. You know, humans are just another species on this planet. No species exists on their own. We need our natural environment to provide us with food, clean air, oxygen, clean water, um, as well as for many people, spiritual and cultural values, um, recreation, um, mitigation of the climate, you name it, nature provides us with it. So without nature, we don't live on this planet either. And Victor? Yeah, well, I guess, um, you know, we are nature and we are part of this universe and part of this world. And 
everything about people and country um, through our ancestors have been, um, you know, all one with the planet and one with nature. And um, it's so crucial, so important to understand that um, that can take us even further into the future. And if we align ourselves with nature the right way, um, I believe that we can take um, humanity to the next level of intelligence. Um, because at the moment, um, we're not embracing nature as much as, as, as we should be. It's a bit like not using the full capacity of our brain. That is the right way of saying things. But it's so special. And um, it's not something that we look in from the outside. We are inside nature. And we are nature. Victor, I completely agree. And, and Leslie, likewise, it's hard to disagree with the importance of, of nature to our lives and to our existence. And yet so much of the narrative now around climate change and ecosystem loss is completely doom and gloom. And it's really easy to feel like it's done, the damage is done, it's irreversible. Are we at a point where we should just accept the inevitable demise of the planet and come to terms with it? Or is it possible to turn this around? I don't think we should ever accept defeat um, because accepting defeat in that way is accepting our, our own defeat on this planet. Um, it is absolutely the case that there has been enormous damage wreaked by the human race on our fellow species. Um, and we can't ever go back really to what might have been there once. Um, but we can certainly at least slow down that degradation and deterioration if we live better and more likely on the planet and understand it better. Um, so we cannot give up and just accept defeat. Um, we have to keep trying to do our best. And that that will involve doing things differently. It'll be still important to stop all those, try and stop all those big bad things that that wreak so much havoc. You know, like we can't just say, uh, should we, should we do this or should we not? That's a that's that's an inevitable question. You know that we can't. You know we have to do something about it. You know, I mean, you got to think about the future generations down the road. What they're going to say when they look back? And already, when we look at um, um, our history, our, our our modern recent history, um, and what we've done as a collective, as humanity to this planet, is um, it's not something not to be proud of for future generations. Um, in some areas, of course, not all areas, but we do, we do really well in other areas, but there are areas that um, that we've done very badly with allowing the decline of species and the, the water being destroyed and, and continuing to see the resources of the planet diminish. And, and um, that's not fair. Now, when we look at what people have done before us and we see, you know, humans have lived on this planet for thousands of years before us and they left behind a, a, a beautiful world. And to think that um, it's okay to leave behind a destroyed world for the future generations, I think it's just, um, yeah, that's just out of the question in my books. Victor, if I can sort of keep on, keep on that theme. Um, you, you said we are nature and you said, you know, as individuals we have to think about the future generations. So if, if we talk about at a community level now, what do you see those impacts of climate change um, both in terms of biodiversity, biodiversity loss, but also their their impact on Indigenous communities, vulnerable communities, um, 
both in Australia and around the world. What what do you what do you think we need to be doing to to work with those communities who, as you say, are nature? I mean, um, you know, it's about reconnecting everybody, and it's about um, awakening that that memory within everybody's DNA that they actually do come from this planet, and um, we can't be separating and um you know it's about cherishing that that knowledge system that have come from ancient humans on this planet and um traditional people from their own homelands and that sort of knowledge is so valuable and we need to grasp onto that that's like saying like your grandfather you know i should have told got them stories of my grandfather before he passed away it's the same thing with the experience of um you know aboriginal people and other traditional groups that have had a long time experience on this planet and that needs to be highly valuable and and um it needs all the respect possible to give it its biggest opportunities to demonstrate itself to rebuild itself um and to allow itself to contribute to solutions um and um combine with um the environment solutions combining with even the, the modern technology solutions i think Right across the board, um, Indigenous knowledge systems has a lot to share in every aspect and every category of life. And, um, and it's just about giving it that capacity to demonstrate itself. And, and that's what's happened with a lot of the firework. It's been demonstrating that knowledge out, um, but also being inclusive and inviting you know, the community in to um, experience that. And that um, has created um, a whole um, energy of networks that. Um, from all different walks of life that are helping to, to get, you know, a, an objective done and an, an objective that is huge. Absolutely. And, and you talk about respect for country and respect for culture. I, I want to, Leslie, go to you and, and ask you a question. Um, Victor mentioned livelihoods, and there's been a lot written recently about nature-based solutions um, and the potential to deliver nature and community sort of livelihood outcomes um, and get that balance between people and nature. Can you just tell us your thoughts on nature-based solutions and the potential to transform our, our relationship with nature? Thanks, Dermot. Look, I think this whole concept of nature-based solutions is a hugely positive one because it allows us to help emphasise to people that healthy environments are good for people too. So a nature-based solution is basically addressing a problem, be it climate change or another problem, um, and using some aspect of nature or an inter a positive intervention for nature to, to help solve um, or reduce the vulnerability of, say, a human community to, say, extreme weather. So we know the, the one thing about climate change is that it's very, very unfair. You know, the people who have contributed least to it are those that will likely suffer the most. So uh, people in lower socioeconomic groups, people in remote communities, people who live close to the land, who are subsistence farmers, tend to be more exposed to the extremes of nature. And they are the people that have contributed much less than a middle-class person living in an air-conditioned apartment block in, in a city, for example. 
but recognising that by using the natural world around us to help us cope with climate change is, is an enormously important concept moving forward. So, you know, as an example, we know that keeping mangroves and coral reef systems intact along coasts reduces the impact of storm surges and rising sea levels, as well as being great for nature, their nurseries for fish and all sorts of other things, and they provide livelihoods for people in coastal communities. And there's been a lot of economic modelling done showing that it's much cheaper and more, much more cost-effective to keep those ecosystems intact, to restore them, look after them, than, for example, building some big seawall or some artificial levee. So the more examples that we can come up with like that, the more we can actually demonstrate, even to those that are driven by economic rationalism, um, that a healthy environment, intact nature, diverse species are actually really good, not only for people in an everyday sense, but will help us be more resilient to the challenges of the future. Leslie, I think your point about how climate change is having the greatest impact on those who contributed the least to it is really powerful and it was certainly one of the driving factors in us wanting to do this season of Goodwill Hunters. And we know there is an enormous impact on our neighbours in the Pacific and Southeast Asia especially. I want to turn to a domestic focus for a moment though. Leslie, can I first ask you from a scientist viewpoint, how do you see ecosystem loss playing out in Australia and how is it impacting um, both ecosystems and communities here in Australia? Well, I was recently involved in publishing a piece of work where we actually identified 19 ecosystems in Australia that were in some form of collapse in some part of their range. Everything from tropical savannas to great, the Great Barrier Reef to kelp forests to, you, you know, some eucalypt forests and lots and lots of others. So, you know, we're really good actually at documenting decline. Um, we're less good at putting economic value on that because sometimes it's hard to do that. But it's very clear that there are economic values as well as social and cultural values of, of ecosystem and biodiversity loss. You know, it's a, it's a big part of how people um, see themselves and the world and their communities. You know, it's a big part of thinking things like, I really want my children to be able to go and snorkel on a coral reef like I did when I was a child and feeling the potential loss of that is actually a growing and really important mental health issue. So nature provides us with so much that we want to keep um, that we just really need to work harder at it. Yeah, that's right. And I think, Victor, to you now, the bushfires that devastated Australia in 2019 and 20 are still so fresh in many of our minds. Did you see firsthand the impact of those bushfires on um, Indigenous communities and culture and connection to the land? Um, I think it goes back to what, right back to what Leslie was saying about the ecosystem collapsing. That's been happening before these, these wildfires come along. And those before that wildfires around that south coast area in 2019, there was another one 40 years before that was just as bad, and not in terms of scale, but in terms of intensity in certain areas. And 
it um yeah it annihilated the land then and the land has gone through different phases of sickness and after each 10-year phase after a bushfire or 30-year phase and another one occurs um we see um the country getting in worse condition and different you know like and I uh, use some terms like upside down country where the trees are all dead and, uh, and it's just dead trees and we have thickening of, of understory weeds and in, invasive natives and a monoculture of a certain species of plant that has taken over the whole ecosystem and, you know, and that's the canopy on the ground and the dead branches representing the roots of the trees upside down. And it's just from intense fires and, and different stages of intense fires that continuously hammering um, the country. And that decline is all based on neglect. And when we look at um, people being taken out of the landscape, that was the first mistake. People are a part of the landscape. So burning um, knowledge and, and burning country was based on looking after those ecosystems in those different places to ensure that diversity was there. And, to, and that's when the first settlers came to Australia there was diversity and there was a lot of diversity and everything was in its place. And the management of that land and fire um, put in by people, you know, had been a part of that um, evolution over thousands of years. And when you take people out of that um, and we said, well, lock it up and leave it alone, then it, everything starts to break down because one of the, the vital components in there is people. And when we look at healing landscapes, um, we're a part of that process. And that's why for Aboriginal people, um, when we heal the land, we heal ourselves. And when we look at um, the state that the land is in, there's a lot of work to do and it's huge. Um, but as daunting as that, as that might sound, um, it's actually also really exciting. And um, as we heal country and as we set our minds um, to change our ways to look after the planet better comes um, more opportunity and more knowledge and more insights and um, more more healing and relationship building, all the things above. And that's why the country is so important to us. One of the, you talked about opportunities, Victor, and one of the opportunities that I have seen a much more increased interest in cultural burning um, and You've obviously played a, a very key and central role in that. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about, you know, the process of cultural burning. What is it and, and why is it different and, and its ability to have a, a holistic solution to reducing the, the vulnerability of landscapes and communities to increasing fires due to climate change? Well, Aboriginal fire management um, is is looking after country and it's all about food um, and you know when landscape it's all about spirituality it's about um, protecting country from wildfire so you don't lose all your resources um, the whole landscape was life and property for aboriginal people and the whole landscape and all the resources was the economy it wasn't money um, there was trade in in, um, in resources natural resources and so to look after your land made sense so that you had a healthy land and abundance of resource um, made, you, made you very wealthy and rich in sense of, not rich in as we know today, but very wealthy and healthy in sense of rich landscape and rich culture and resource and, 
And that creates really beautiful kinship systems um, with other clan groups and laws and marriage, intermarriage. And when we look at the fire management and cultural fire today, um, you know, it's needed more than ever. And then you get people saying things like, oh, well, it's a changed landscape now. You can't, Aboriginal knowledge doesn't apply anymore. You can't do anything from, you know, from that knowledge system because there's no trees left, it's a different world now. You know, that's the, another big mistake they make because it doesn't matter what they do to the planet, um, the natural law of that country will always remain. And then soils and the healing and, and that knowledge is so needed now than more than ever to heal landscapes. And so when we look at Indigenous knowledge of fire or any knowledge of country, um, that gives us a fundamental baseline and a knowledge system to work from and be enabled to know how land was maintained. And so in a modern sense, um, we're adapting our burns, knowing that, um, say, for example, a gum tree country burns in early winter time. When we burn that in early winter, when it's healthy with grasses, there's not much moisture in the soils. It's quite you know, it doesn't need as much moisture because of the, the grasses that it has. And when the grasses are half green and half dry, then when it burns at that right time, that's all fine. But when we go there and it's full of weed or lantana or, or, or leaf litter all on the ground and there's no native species left, well, then that creates a different heat. Um, and not the heat, the grasses that belong there would actually, it would be a different fire in two ways, from the size of the fire and also from the speed of the fire. And that's why it's so important that uh, that foundation of that knowledge from the Maori people um, has been really, really the key to a lot of the success around healing landscapes over the last 20 or so years and using fire and getting rid of weeds and bringing back the grasses that once was all leaf litter and helping the, the trees to grow for, uh, you know, to bring up more trees without planting trees, um, activating seed banks, and then further demonstrating. Um, you know, um, you know, and clarifying um, that knowledge, that true knowledge that's come from our elders and how they manage landscapes and, and to see that, it, that we can still do those techniques on country. So, Leslie, um, you're one of the world's, Australian, one of the world's leading scientists on this space. As you listen to Victor, how, how do you see that blending of cultural and traditional knowledge with the Western science, how, how, how do we bring that together to really help uh, build, uh, you know, increase resilience and adapt to a changing climate? Look, I think it has to be a, a two-way communication, not just one learning from the other and not the other way around. I think uh, Western traditional science, if you put it like that, can learn a tremendous amount from First Nations people and things like cultural burning. But I also think that the knowledge needs to flow in the other direction as well. And it needs to be a collaboration, not just one way. I think the challenge that we have in particular in relation to fire is that while certainly Indigenous peoples have been managing fire in the Australian landscape for tens of thousands of years, we now have an external context, which is the rapidity of climate change, which is going to affect the effectiveness of all fire management processes, whether they be traditional European ones or Indigenous ones. You know, the last IPCC report was very clear that we now have a rate of global warming that is almost unprecedented in the four and a half billion years of Earth's history. You know, we are moving into a situation 
that is unprecedented almost every year. And all traditional practices, wherever they've come from, will have to adapt to that new reality. Um, you know, going back to the 2019-2020 fires, that was 2019 was Australia's hottest ever year, and it was our driest ever year as well. And that set up the sort of perfect storm of conditions for those uh, fires that we experienced, which were unprecedented in their scale and their ferocity. Um, you know, my my friend Greg Mullins, my fellow climate counsellor, has told me about seeing, who's been fighting fires for 50 years, has told me about seeing walls of flame metres high going across people's lawns. You know, it would not have mattered what sort of preparation you could have had before those fires. They were out of control and just could not be controlled by anybody. So I, I really think that there needs to be a collaborative process going forward in Australia to increase resilience with all scientists, be they Indigenous people or traditional scientists like myself, learning from each other in a context that we've never faced before. Victor, did you want to respond to that? Yes, I do. Um, yeah, I just, um, yeah, it has been one way all the time. Yeah, it has been one way. It's been Western science way all the time, and we didn't ever get a chance. And um, so it's not one way in the sense of only being Indigenous, that's for sure. Um, we, you know, in terms of elders and communities, we've been wanting to be heard for so long. And when we look at the, the work to date now for Indigenous knowledge, trying to get into the, in there and try and look after country and try and be part of the, the round table in the mainstream, it's been a constant battle. And then you hear people say, oh, got to be two ways, not one way. So it's been one way all the time. <laughs> and so that's why I was saying earlier, you know, like we need that capacity and we need that capacity to be able to make that happen. And we need Western science to support us and to be a part of that. And um, we're still waiting for that. And it's only just now that we're starting to get universities to support us with developing scholarships around our mentorship programs, around the training models that are being developed at the moment for the communities. I mean, what we're, we've, we've done to date has been off, off, off our own backs and, and trying to make that happen and build that capacity. And then when we finally get to the point where, um, you know, we're able to demonstrate stuff, then people catch on and then they start to be a part of that and part of that network. And, you know, and it's all about the communities and all about the people in communities and, um, and ensuring that the people on the ground are a part of the process as well. And that is um, the difference between um, the Indigenous process and the government process. I mean, yes, government involves community to some level, but when we look at the fire stuff, they don't allow people who don't have a fire certificate on country, they don't allow this, they don't allow that. And um, when we get out there, we bring the women and children, everyone to learn, even the old lady down the road um, who lives in the local residence come to the workshops and we share with the entire everybody. And it's all about the regions and everybody getting involved. And, um, but, you know, we just continue, to, um, just to continue to fight to be heard. And that's something that we continue to do. But it's a different way that we try and do that now. And, you know, we just get out there and try and make it happen and try and demonstrate rather than talk and go to meetings. Um, and that's why Fire Sticks is at the point where it's at is because we've 
invited community in and we've demonstrated and we've been open and we shared all our knowledge and and we've they've all come to our workshops and um and you know that's what aboriginal culture is is sharing and caring and um and that's what aboriginal um governance is and that's what aboriginal culture is it's um people as a whole um connected to landscape through culture and um and and that's the the breakthrough that that we're looking for and when we see that sort of stuff happening then we see the social benefits that come from that that um that also um bring more opportunity in to the on ground and also starts to teach us the agencies and science and everyone how to work with community Victor, let me let me let me pick up on that because i think that frustration comes across really strongly however you, you talked about opportunity a bit earlier on and i know from the work that wwf is doing with Fistics, and i think that one of the one of the outcomes has been from the, the disaster of the bushfires is that um, Indigenous fire, uh, Indigenous rangers and, and, and cultural uh, groups coming together across the country. And you had a national summit, um, which Firesticks helped to organise only a few, you know, a few months ago. Um, so there, there has been a coming together of um, Indigenous groups across the country to share knowledge, to share cultural management. Things. Do you see that as being a, a foundational base that we can build on to to address that frustration? Yeah, I mean, getting all the communities coming together—that's one of our methodologies—is community mentorship, meaning community mentoring community. So when we have one workshop here, everyone in the region from different towns come to that fellows workshop. When they run a workshop over here, then everyone goes over to their workshops, and that's how we've been running it. And doing that, and there's many reasons for that. Um, one, one is a lack of resources while we depend on each other and help each other. Hello, that's what Aboriginal people do, and not just Aboriginal people, but community people from communities, white, black, brindle, brown. You know, they all help each other. And you know, we're talking about shifting a culture here. It's been the modern culture that's that's created this mess, and so it, culture needs to change. And we need to be um, evolving together and we need to have something in common as a baseline, like our roots. And that is at least the only thing that can give us that baseline structure is, is the landscape and country. Right. Thank you so much, Victor. I'm, uh, Leslie, if I can come back to you. Um, and, um, you know, one of the early questions was really around, you know, are we, uh, is this climate disaster baked in is the climate great or can we do something about it and and i think it as you talked about we can't get stuck in a in a place of despair we need to have a, a place of hope so there on the mitigation side of tackling climate change there are lots of things that we can do um you know electrify everything um secure carbon in the landscape can you can you sort of talk through that vision of optimism um, and how confident are you that we can, as a country, as communities and as a planet, deliver that? Well, you know, the IPCC report that just came out um, was a pretty grim set of chapters, um, thousands of pages of, of grim reality. But the silver lining in that report was that it said that if we make really rapid and deep emissions cuts very, very soon, 
then within 20 to 30 years, that is within most of our lifetimes, we can at least level off the rate of global warming and start to move to a more safer climatic operating space for humanity. So we absolutely need to tackle the root cause of the problem, which is greenhouse gases, and do it very, very quickly. And if we can do that, then hopefully, you know, by about the middle of this century, we'll at least be in a more stable place instead of an accelerating dangerous place and hopefully turn it round. But in order to do that, and of course, along the way, things are going to get worse over the next couple of decades before they get better. So all sorts of adaptation to extreme weather events is going to have to be brought to bear. Um, But in terms of how we do that, yes, absolutely. We need to stop, (laughs) number one, stop burning fossil fuels because every molecule of fossil fuel, every molecule of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere is doing us harm because every fraction of a degree of warming is doing us and our environment harm. So we do need to electrify everything because then that gives us the opportunity to decouple economic development and things like energy production from the need to burn fossil fuels because then we can use Australia's abundant natural resources, our wonderful solar resources, our wonderful wind resources and other things to to shift our economy and shift the way we do things. Um, In order to do that, we're also going to have to do a whole bunch of other things, you know, look seriously at our diet, the way we do agriculture. We need to promote regenerative agriculture to store a lot more carbon in our soils. Um, We need to put back a lot of the vegetation that has been cleared because trees and plants are still the best way we know of, of drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere and into something that's safe. And at the same time, of course, we provide habitat for biodiversity. So, um, you know, climate change is such a hugely complex, wicked problem. We can't tackle it with just one strategy. We have to tackle it with the billions of choices that we make every day because thus far we've made a lot of very bad choices and now we have to start very rapidly making a whole lot of good choices. But to come to your question of am I confident, am I hopeful, Um, I regard hope as a strategy, not an emotion. Um, We have to have hope, we have to have confidence because if we don't have those two things, we give up. And if we give up, we're we're actually lost. So I don't see that we have any alternative but to go forward as if we can fix things. I think hope is a fantastic strategy. And one quick point I would make is I think COVID-19 has proven that the world can mobilise very quickly together against a shared threat. When we think over the last 12 months, a very large proportion of the world was at home and was aware of this threat and was acting accordingly. And yet we can't mobilise the same way against climate change, I guess, because it's not seen as such an imminent threat as a pandemic. Um, and yet we know, I think all of us in, in this room know it is. So how do we how do we communicate that? Well, look, I think, I mean, I think that the parallel of the COVID pandemic is a really interesting one because the countries that have dealt with the COVID pandemic better did three things. Firstly, they listened to experts, they listened to scientists, uh, they prioritised the threat and they acted early. 
Now, you could argue that with climate change, we haven't acted early, but acting sooner rather than later is a really good idea. We need to listen to all of those people, whether Indigenous or traditional scientists producing knowledge um, and, and pay attention. And we absolutely need to prioritise this as a threat over everything else, because once we do get the COVID pandemic um, under control, which I believe we will do, climate change is still going to be with us in the long term. But we can certainly draw on what we've learnt from the pandemic, draw on the fact that thousands and millions of lives have been saved because of behavioural changes by individuals and communities, um, acting under expert advice. So let's apply that to the climate change problem as well. Great. Thank you, Leslie. A, a very simple, a short answer back to this question. So do you think Australia has the opportunity to become a renewable energy exporting superpower? Of course I do, Dermot. Um, so we have one of the best solar resources on the planet. We have great wind resources. We also have great technology. We have an educated population. We have the land and the space. And amongst the community and the business community, we have that will. Um, so, yes, we, we could produce much more energy from renewable resources than we need. We can then export that energy directly and we can export goods that we have manufactured with that energy. So I think, you know, moving into a new clean, green economy has enormous opportunities for Australia if we could only grab those opportunities. Right. Thank you, Leslie. Victor. Can Australia, well, should Australia and can Australia be a world leader in Indigenous-led um, resilience building both for nature and communities to address the climate challenge? Yeah, and what Leslie said there was right, you know, like Australia does have the opportunity because they have the, we have the sun and we have that, those resources to be able to make that possible. And, um, you know, that's, you know, we're lucky, you know, we've got that, you know. And, um, and the other side of the coin now that you're asking this question is, yes, we are really lucky too to have one of the oldest races in the world here too. And, and, um, and what can come from that to inspire um, change within society and with the way we manage the environment. There's, um, there's so much to share and learn. And when we look at since those wildfires, you know, the whole world has been looking in on Indigenous Australia around the fire practices. And as a result, um, you know, I'm working on projects in Canada. Um, there's the mob in Northern Territory that are working in Africa. Uh, I'm also done stuff in, um, you know, United States. You know, I've done work with the Sami in Finland, not in fire, then, but in recording traditional knowledge and not in knowledge categories of rebuilding knowledge of their landscapes through traditional knowledge, um, um, which in their case linked to salmon and so much more. There's so much to share. And even within that Indigenous knowledge system is also around the economy too. So we've got projects looking at invasive plants um, and cutting them out of the country and turn them into a product rather than waste them. And, um, and looking at while we're healing country, we look at economic opportunities around that because we have thousands of hectares of this plant that don't belong in that system, belong there, that's taken over, whether it be a weed or an invasive native. Um, we're looking at economics around that, whether it be oils or biochar or, or um, foods or medicines or teas or whatever. It's, it's endless. There are the possibilities. And those are the things that we want science to help us with. 
And we want them to help us set up these franchises and help us to do the studies on, on the plans and ideas that we have. Um, and, and we have uh, thousands of ideas, that, um, but we don't have the resources to be able to launch them and to be able to demonstrate them and, give, and test them. In just a few weeks, there will be a very important climate COP um, in the UK. Can you tell me what commitments you're hoping Australia will make? Well, I can tell you the commitment I think Australia will make, which won't be the same. Um, I think my prediction would be is the government will go to the COP with a net zero by 2050 target. There's all lots of indications that that will happen. However, unfortunately, we know now because we've waited so long to reduce emissions that net zero by 2050 is too late, probably at least a decade too late for warming to um, stop um, well before two degrees above pre-industrial levels. Um, but it's really the emissions reduction by 2030 that really counts because it's the, the near-term actions that count a lot more than what we might do in 2040 or 2050. So what I would like to see is Australia going to the COP and saying we are going to triple the level of our ambitions for emissions reduction. We are also going to remove all fossil fuel subsidies for which you and I as taxpayers pay $10.3 billion a year. And we are going to not um, release any more exploration or mining licences for fossil fuels in Australia. That's what I'd like to see. I'm pretty sure we won't see that. Thank you, Leslie. That, that ambition sounds exciting. And I think, Victor, the, your vision of Australia is a vision that excites me and I hope all Australians for how we need to live, live in our land and respect our country um, as a community and as a society. So uh, Leslie and Victor, thank you so much for joining this session of Goodwill Hunters. And we look forward to continuing the conversation on this very important subject. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. That was episode one of the spring series of Goodwill Hunters. Join us next week for another great interview on food and our food future with two pioneering experts in the space. See you then.